listeners, and welcome to the NK News Podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and today it is the evening of Sunday, the 22nd of August in Seoul, where I'm joined via Zoom by two guests, Mason Ritchie and David Tizard, who are two of three co-editors and authors of a new academic volume entitled The Future of the Korean Peninsula, Korea 2032 and Beyond, that is hot off the press from Rutledge. Before we get started, I'd like to remind you to please leave a review about this podcast wherever you can. Now, you might be wondering why I always ask you to do this, and it's so that people can discover our podcast more easily. No reviews means that the all-powerful algorithm pushes us down the internet podcast rabbit hole into the abyss of ignorance, and no one new will ever listen to us. So please do leave a review, and while you're at it, please share this episode with everyone you know and three people whom you don't. Secondly, check out nknews.org and consider buying a subscription there. Thirdly, have you ever wanted a bit of North Korea-style artwork to adorn your walls without giving money to the North Korean government? Or perhaps a North Korean leadership wall chart that could help you understand who's who within the DPRK's opaque government structure? Now you can get your hands on the latest North Korea-related items from NK News at the click of a button. Simply visit nknews.org backslash shop, and you'll find an up-to-date selection of items that can be shipped anytime right to your home or office. Also, if you have any feedback, questions, or guest recommendations, please send them to podcast at nknews.org. All right, my guests today are two of three co-editors of a new volume published by Rutledge called The Future of the Korean Peninsula, Korea 2032 and Beyond. Mason Ritchie is Associate Professor of International Politics at the Hanguk University of Foreign Studies, or HUFS, in Seoul, South Korea. David A. Tizard is Assistant Professor at Seoul Women's University, South Korea. And unfortunately, unable to join us today because of a travel schedule hiccup is Jagannath P. Panda, who is a research fellow and center head for East Asia at the Manohar Parikar Institute for Defense Studies and Analyses, India. Thank you, Mason and David, for joining me on the show. Thanks for having us, Jacko. Yes, indeed. Thank you for having us, Jacko. And I'd just like to say it's a, it's a great pleasure to, to be on NK News. I've listened to a lot of the episodes since the very beginning and recently the the ones with Steve Began and Ambassador Thomas Schaefer, they have been fascinating to listen to. I think you're doing a really cool thing with this uh, podcast. So uh, thanks for having us on and I, I wish you continued success with it. Thank you, David. And uh, also, yeah, don't be hesitant to recommend any guests that you might run into that you think would be good on the show. I'm always looking for new and interesting people to speak to. Absolutely. Will do. Okay, now the obvious question to begin with is why have you chosen the year 2032 to be part of your book's title? What is the significance of that year? And before you answer that, it reminds me of my first trip to North Korea in 2010, when my guide told me that I should come back in 2012 because it was going to be amazing. And if you remember, that was the year that North Korea was due to open the great gate to being a strong and prosperous nation. And I asked my guide at the time in 2010 what he expected to happen in 2012. And he smiled mysteriously and said something like, come and see. And there were a number of people during the tour who said the same thing. Come back in two years time. It's going to be awesome. Now, as it happens, I did not go back in 2012. Uh, but I don't remember much of anything happening except that it was Kim Jong-un's first year in power. But my guide couldn't possibly have known that in 2010. So 2032, what about it? David, you mind if I go first? Absolutely, Mason. Please do. Okay, so uh, Jacko, you know this uh, title is uh, a bit, let's say, overdetermined. Um, 
So in the first place, the uh, you know, actual you know, publication date uh, in the book is uh, 2022, not 2021, even though technically the, the book is already out. So uh, it's a nice right, round. I noticed that. I felt like I was reading the future. Yeah, so it's a, it's a nice round number from the from the actual you know, ISBN uh, publication date, which is uh, 2022. Uh, that's one reason. Uh, second reason is you know, it's a period of time that is, uh, let's say, you know, near to medium term. So you know, you're not talking about you know what's happening exactly right now at this moment. You're not talking about what is happening six months out or a year out. Uh, which is, I think, oftentimes uh, sort of the, the limit at which people tend to, to think about what might be happening on the peninsula, nor is mm. it something much more you know, longer term, you know, uh, a time period that you know, looks towards you know, the middle of the century or some uh, you know, highly important date like the you know, you know, 100th anniversary of the founding of the party or something like that. Uh, it's a sort of nice round uh, figure date that's not too far out in terms of time, but also not too close. And then thirdly, uh, when we were you know, putting the, the idea for the book together, there was quite a bit of talk from the Moon administration uh, about having a joint uh, Olympic team with the North and even putting in a bid to co-host uh, the Summer Olympics in 2032. Uh, that's since fallen by the wayside, as we know the IOC is basically mm. gone with Brisbane, uh, but the, the hope of a joint uh, team uh, is still on the table, I think. Yeah. Now, just a quick question about the Olympics there. I'm not a great fan, to be honest. And uh, if the whole IOC slash Olympic edifice were to collapse into a mess of its own contradictions and corruption, I wouldn't lose a moment's sleep over it. Sorry to the athletes, of course, but uh, you know, I'm talking about the just the, the, the structure of the organization. Nevertheless, it was my understanding that there was only one proper bid submitted for 2032, and that was Brisbane. Did Korea actually submit a bid, or, or do we have any idea how close it came? Anyone? They did come close. It was definitely talked about from sort of 2017, and um, that was from President Moon himself. Of course, that's not an official bid, no. um, but, it, but it had come out of the Blue House uh, unification. Unification Ministry had also sort of mentioned it and asked North Korea to sort of catch up and get their act together mm. this this suggestion of the co-hosting of the 2032 olympics was alongside as well a co-hosting a, a possible a suggested co-hosting of a 2030 fifa world cup as well mm -hmm. so lots of grand ideas but all coming out of south korea rather than the dprk okay and and they basically they never filed the paperwork as far as we're aware not as far as we're aware. There was lots of talk about it. It, made, yeah. it certainly made some headlines. It got a lot of media clicks, but whether it went through the bureaucratic process, bureaucratic process remains to be seen, but it doesn't look as if it did, no. Yeah. Now, the title of your book also reminds me of an excellent, but uh, nowadays little discussed and perhaps almost forgotten 1998 book by Roy Richard Grinker called Korea and Its Futures, Unification and the Unfinished War. Uh, has either of you read it? I have not actually. Um, no. No. Maybe you can. Maybe you can give us a precy of it. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I thought it was the uh, the first um, sort of sensible book in in English written around the time of uh, South Korea. Well, it, it was Sunshine Policy period, so uh, it was now possible to look at North Korea in a way other than assuming it was full of uh, horned and and uh, tailed devils. Uh, 
And it, it was, yeah, a, a very good book, which one of the major themes it talked about was this Dongju Song Hui book, or the, the recovery of lost homogeneity, uh, that sort of trying to uh, pick apart and demolish the myth that uh, North Korea is, as it were, like a sleeping beauty waiting for her Prince Charming to come and, and rouse her from her long slumber. Uh, and then everyone's just going to be the same and it, it's going to be uh, happy days again. Uh, and, and this book really destroyed that myth. And, and I thought uh, it was quite timely. But yeah, as I said, uh, uh, it's been ma mainly forgotten in the uh, intervening 23 years. And uh, Roy Richard Grinker hasn't written anything more on Korea than I'm aware of. So uh, it's sort of one of those ones that's gone by the wayside. Nevertheless, still still fun to go back and read read it. So uh, I do recommend. Well, I'll, I'll definitely put that on the list. You know, there there are actually lots of things that that you can't get to, you know, things that are even relatively new. The, the, the deluge of things that we see coming out uh, about the peninsula these days makes it so difficult to keep up on on the literature, especially if you're trying to be you know both uh, in depth and relatively broad. If you're trying to cover you know security politics. Economics, society, culture, uh, history—you uh, know—the the formal academic work, the things that come out of think tanks, uh, and then obviously the more popular press. You know, much less—you know—what we find online and the the sort of constant stream of news. It's so easy to get lost in the the, the mountain of literature these days. But uh, thanks for the tip. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It, it it was. I think I had I had the feeling, rightly or wrongly, that uh, before 2000, it was possible given you know, enough time and cups of coffee to read basically all English language output on, uh, on in North and South Korea. Uh, but that's certainly no longer the case. Uh, you, know, you, you just couldn't get through it. Um, now, your book situates Korea in Northeast Asia and global affairs. Uh, give us a snapshot. Where does Korea sit in contemporary Northeast Asia, David? Well, it, it sits, and, and this is where we try to get to with the book, whether we look at Korea, whether we look at South Korea or North Korea, because the answers become really divergent according to what lens you take. If we mm. take the South Korea, we know, for example, that it's it's a, a beacon of democracy in this part of the world. It's achieving great things, not just economically, um, but also culturally with its successes around the world in music and movies and arts. But then we have this fascinating contradiction of the other part of Korea, the other side, the other part of that dialectic, North Korea. And although it is, uh, as a lot of work is now showing, trying its own cultural push, it's trying to make vlogs, it's trying to do YouTube, it's trying to show a softer side of North Korea and and get onto that. It's it's well behind in, in people's imaginations in that way. So the Korean peninsula is a place of sort of the, the height of coolness in the modern zeitgeist. And at the same time, it's home to some of sort of the more, uh, let's say, uncool music and uh, cultural productions that people would want to look at. So it's, it, it's both things in Northeast Asia. It, it's at the height, it's at the apex, but also at the nadir. And so putting those two together, that's one of the questions that we were trying to ask in this book, I think, or is it possible to look at a Korea in Northeast Asia as a unified Korea or mm. as a single entity rather than having to split them both apart and come to terms with those huge contradictions? And I should also say as well that those contradictions don't just apply to South and North, but they also apply in South Korea themselves and in North Korea themselves, whether you're in 
sort of the middle or the middle of the city or the uh, rural countryside, those those contradictions exist within inside each one as well. So it, it's really difficult to answer this question. I think where where is career in Northeast Asia? Mm. It's and and that's why I think what we tried to do with this book. I'm sorry if I'm jumping ahead, but it really depends if we're asking sort of economically or if we're asking culturally, if we're asking politically, if if one comes at it from an angle of sort of hawkishness or doveness or, or of peace or military arrangements of great power politics or the lives of individual people that are just trying to get by. I mean, let's not forget that it's home to about, what, 76 million people here. And to answer that question, maybe we have 76 million different answers. So... Yeah, that's where I kind of go with that question. Yeah, you, you bring up the interesting point that unlike most books that focus on one career or the other, you make a point of looking at North and South together and, and talking about a, a single future trajectory for the Korean Peninsula in as much as such a thing is possible. How, how or why did you choose to do that? This one to, uh, to Mason. Yeah, if I can jump in here. So, you know, I think the the book deals with two things that, I guess I won't say you know aren't, aren't dealt with in, in in other parts of the literature as we just talked about you know the literature these days is, is so enormous essentially everything's been talked about there's nothing new under the sun but you know something that maybe doesn't get enough uh, treatment or or something that's relatively easily forgotten you know despite the the literature and that's in the first place you know looking at inter-Korean relations dialectically so David David you know. Uh, referred to it as a, you know looking at the Korean Peninsula in a unified way. I, t I tended to think of that um, form of unity a, as a sort of dialectic, which is to say how the North and the South uh, you know display so many oppositions that do somehow still contain unities. You know that the two are sometimes similar, but covered. You know some of those similarities are covered over by the accretion of seeming differences you know which when you start to scratch the surface and, and look down below that um you know don't actually seem like the differences are as big as, as you might think uh and perhaps even more importantly when we talk about this sort of dialectical unity of, of south and the north how each of the two often define themselves in opposition to the other uh in that sort of sense you know philosophical sense of, of dialectic and then the second thing that the book is is really trying to do is to analyze the Korean Peninsula, you know, in terms of security, politics, both domestic and international, economics, uh, society and culture, to see where we are, how we got here, and how the developments in these areas today condition the possibilities of for what the peninsula could look like in this near to medium term um, future that I talked about, this you know ten year period out from from today, you know looking to to 2032, and so if I can sort of put those two things and go back to your original question, you know where you know where is Korea today in Northeast Asia, uh, you know David's right that it sort of depends on on what you're you're asking about, and you know if we're talking about it, for instance, you know economically. Where it is now is obviously, you know, an end point and uh, to something that could be truly fantastic. For instance, the uh, long-distance railroad networks that could cross, you know, from Pusan all the way through North Korea, through Russia, China, uh, and and into Europe as a as a large part of this you know, Eurasian landmass railroad network. And of course, that's you know cut off today, and sanctions make that impossible. Trust problems make that impossible infrastructure in North Korea makes that make that makes that impossible. 
but if you look at you know the the plans that that are out there, if you look at the you know the way that the design you know could look, uh, you know there's something really positive there. So if you look at the reasons why we're not able to get there today, obviously it's kind of tragic. But if you scratch below that surface and and you begin to look at what designs are out there, you could you could see something positive. And another way to think about it is the way that uh, you know both Koreas have an extremely uneasy uh, relationship with uh, with China at the moment. As we all know, you know North Korea doesn't really trust uh, you know, China. You know, Pyongyang has had you know, long held distrust uh, for Beijing, uh, and South Korea, you know, for its uh, part, is also trying to figure out exactly you know where it lies in between the U.S. and China, its you know security partner and military ally, uh, and its economic partner. Uh, and you know, both Koreas are trying to to struggle with the geopolitics of of that in the region perhaps with some different background, but you know, nonetheless trying to, to gain some, some autonomy uh, geostrategically in the region. You think that we'll be somewhere closer to some form, note that I say some form, of Korean unification around 2032, whether that be uh, an economic union or, uh, or a political union or what? Again, I'll, I'll jump in first, and then I'll let David answer this. And, and to be honest with you, uh, David and I haven't really discussed this directly, so I'll be interested to see what David's answer is. Hmm. Yeah, I, I did a uh, I did a sort of meet the author in this case meet the editor bit with uh, Asia Society Korea, and you know one of the questions that that came along was you know something like you know can you tell us like what you know what you might think would be the case uh, in in this decade uh, in between now and 2032, and I answered. You know, in the first place, by saying, you know, we're not in the business in this book of making predictions. You know, as I said, what we're trying to do is kind of analyze the current circumstances so that we can, you know, see how today's situation conditioned the various possibilities uh, for what the peninsula could look like, whether that be, you know, sanctions in the economic realm or whether that be denuclearization or, you know, whether that be society and, cult, you know, social and cultural changes. But, you know, the two things I, I answered straightforwardly in the Asia Society Korea um, uh, spot was in the first place. I don't think that North Korea is going to be denuclearized, and uh, whatever that means. Uh, and secondly, I don't think that the North and South are going to be unified in you know anything that one would you know consider as a sort of you know standard or even minimal definition of you know political mm -hmm. unity, whether that be a confederation or or certainly something you know more closely integrated than that. I can imagine that there would be much more significant economic cooperation, although I think obviously that depends on you know how sanctions evolve uh, over time, and you know in particular that's a tough question uh, for South Korea. David, yeah, obviously it's it's fun to make predictions, and they can garner lots of headlines and things like that. But as as we all know, sort of there's no crystal ball for into Korean relations, so it's very hard to say. What I will say going forward is that there are two things I'd like to address here. The first is going forward, I see that both states, independently of each other, are simply going to solidify their places in the, in the broader international society and system. South Korea is already well established in there, but I, I see North Korea continuing to do that, obviously coming from a British perspective, and I've studied the diplomatic relations between my country of Britain and, and North Korea, 
we have an ambassador, we have an embassy in Pyongyang. It's a, it's a, a legitimate state in our eyes. And uh, it is for most of the world, actually. And, and so I believe that North Korea is going to continue to establish itself in the international society. And of course, the, the nuclear question and everything else will, will come up and that will have to be addressed. But I see them as further cementing their positions um, in international society in the coming decade. Now, the second point I'd just like to sort of raise here is, and this was a question that I thought was really interesting. We touch on this in the introduction of the book. And I think it's worth considering, especially in the current age where we've seen um, American forces pull out of Afghanistan. We see post-colonialism and sort of this talk of sovereignty really gaining a lot of traction all around the world. Uh, the question that we ask in the, the beginning of the book, in the introduction, was left to their own devices, how would Koreans shape and construct their world? So we, of course, great power politics and homogenization, multiculturalism, they all exist. And there are 20 odd thousand, 28,000 American troops here on the Korean peninsula and, and such forth. But left to their own devices, how would South Korea and North Korea shape and construct their own world in a Korean way? And what would that look like? And, you know, that that question starts from an assumption that the two Koreas, they are different, yes, but they also do have these things in common. And I think that's really something worth considering and thinking about, because that might be a possibility. If if forces can be withdrawn from, from one country, they can be withdrawn from other countries. And so what would a, a Korean Korea look like? And I, I, to me, that's a fascinating question and something that I've really tried to explore in this book and in my own thoughts. Now, unification features in at least five papers in your book. And at this point, I was going to ask your co-editor, Jagannath, how Korea's neighbors, China, Japan, Russia, and the USA feel about uh, a possible Korean unification. Unfortunately, he's unable to be with us today. Can uh, one of you, uh, Mason or David, fill in for Jagannath and give us a, a, a brief sketch of uh, how the, the great four neighbors feel about Korean unification? I mean, I, the, the short answer is uneasy at best. Yeah, and here I'll, I'll give a, a shout out to Alexandra Sakaki from SWP who wrote the Japan chapter. And it, it's a, a very, well, it, it, it does two things actually very well. The, the first of which is it, it you know, lays out, I think, how it's kind of tragic that the domestic politics uh, in, in Japan and in South Korea, you know, torpedo, you know, better cooperation uh, between those two countries. And uh, secondly, it, it really lays out, you know, the geopolitical reasons, you know, and strategic reasons why it is that Japan is, is so nervous about the idea of a unified Korea. Um, and then uh, China, you know, I think, again, you know, China has a, a pretty significant amount of unease about any type of major transformation uh, on the peninsula. You know, it's, I think, at least with regard to the Korean Peninsula, relatively status quo. I think it's sort of number one goal, as most people, I think, probably agree, uh, you know, is largely that things remain stable uh, and that the geostrategic and geopolitical situation doesn't deteriorate uh, and doesn't destabilize the region. You know, there are some clear tensions there where, you know, one can make the argument that, you know, over time, 
you know, if North and South, you know, don't come closer together, whether it be a form of unification or something else, uh, while North Korea remains a nuclear power that over time South Korea, you know, might be incentivized to develop its own nuclear weapons, which could lead to dominoes falling with Japan and potentially Taiwan. So there are some, uh, there are some pretty out there, but not totally to be excluded events that could happen, you know, that might make China think that, you know, unification or at least some type of more significant integration would be positive. You know, the U.S., I think what's uh, interesting about the, <clears throat> this question with respect to the U.S. is that in the first place, I think essentially the U.S. is, is also relatively, you know, content with the situation the way that it is, but both, I think, in discourse and in practice, you know, largely the United States would leave the fate of, of North Korea uh, and South Korea in the unification process up to those two countries. Uh, you know, I don't think the United States would uh, would necessarily be overly in, invested in you know trying to to shape the peninsula in a way that would be inconsistent with uh, with international law and with its own norms and values, which is not to say that the United States, of course, you know, wouldn't want to influence the way that the peninsula would look. Um, but, you know, in general, I think the, the United States is also relatively status quo oriented. And of course, in South Korea, that leads to uh, a certain strain of politics on the left uh, who find the United States to be the cause of why it is that the North and South uh, aren't able to cooperate better and eventually lead towards unification. I disagree with that entirely. I don't think that that has anything particularly to do with it. Uh, but that's something that remains a sort of sticking point on the left, especially the the generation you know from uh, of activists from from the 1980s, uh, many of whom are in some form or another. Uh, you know, mature and empowered today in South Korea. And what about Russia? And then Russia, you know, I I had a talk with someone, this was, uh, I would say about a year and a half ago, who I consider to be very knowledgeable uh, about this issue. And this is someone in Russia, you know, who has uh, you know, tons of, you know, highly placed contacts in Russian government. And that person told me that he or she believed that there was a sort of informal agreement between Russia and China that essentially Russia was willing to play second fiddle on the overall development of the peninsula and that you know in essence the quid pro quo would be you know China would largely stay out of the areas of uh, interest to Russia you know in central asia and in the caucasus and that the, essentially the korean peninsula was something that that Russia was willing to play second fiddle on uh, so to some degree, I think the the sort of implication of that would be, you know, Russia would largely be willing to go along with, you know, China's overall position on that. And that doesn't mm. seem unreasonable to me. Uh, David, rhetoric aside, which of the two Koreas do you think is more actively seeking to achieve some real, tangible and practical form of unification? Yeah, that's an excellent question, Jacko. I think there is there's lots of real, tangible seeking of unification coming from different people in different ways. So, for example, if you were just to take sort of South Korea, and again, we talk about these, these states, these sort of Chinas, these United States, these billions of people and 350 million people. And inside those states, of course, there's going to be so many different ideas and approaches, and it will be the same here in Korea. We might look at, say, what the right wing in South Korea would be looking for, and there seems to be a consistent theme 
in that, in that they're looking to sort of generate economic growth from the Im Young back um, policies onwards. They're sort of looking to to turn North Korea into another South Korea in, 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 a, in a sense by promoting this economic growth, getting standards of living up and then hoping in a way that sort of modernization theory will, will take place, that as people have their, their material needs satiated, then they might turn to more post-material thoughts and then seek democracy and justice and fairness and such forth. But then again, with inside South Korea, you elements on the left might be approaching it from more masons already touched on it that they find uh, american military presence to be a hindrance if not the ultimate cause of the division that they might be basing it on more a ethno-nationalist approach and they're trying to reunite the the people in sort of a sacred mission in that sense so it's more ideological based than economic and and i'm sure there are elements within north korea as well that will be hoping that let's say people in the south realize the glories of chairman kim jong-un and can also partake in his benevolent rule and and enjoy those things so i would say there's there's lots of different factions all pushing for it and it's probably all of those different approaches which causes the conflict there's no one way that you know will win out it's more likely that some some methods will prove themselves to be less and less feasible as time goes by so I think a lot of people do seek unification, they do seek reunification, but it's that so many people approach it from different ways. And, and until there's that unity of ideas, then it's not likely to happen. And, and perhaps that unity of ideas as well is something that we don't want to happen. We want the different approaches. We want all the, the unique ideas coming out. So many people seeking it, but seeking it in their own ways. And all, the, all of those divisions might be sort of contributing to the continued division of the Korean people. I have to say, I'm, I'm a bit skeptical about uh, whether if, if someone were to, uh, to fly in, you know, if, if some secret emissary from the National Intelligence Service were to fly into Pyongyang tomorrow uh, with the keys to the Blue House and, and present them to Kim Jong-un and said, look, uh, President Moon's going to retire early. Here you go. Here's your chance. Take it over. Reunified in your image. I'm not sure whether Kim Jong-un would jump at that. I, I think that uh, seeing precisely this, uh, this, this wonderful dynamism and chaos in South Korea uh, and, and trying to uh, bring that into the mold of, uh, of the way North Korea works, I, I think that Kim would see that as being a, a, a more a, of a threat than a promise. But well, yeah, I could be wrong on that. Mason, you were going to say? Yeah, I you know you, you know your last question was you know what you know what of the other regional powers and and I I briefly touched on you know Japan and China as being kind of you know skeptical about unification, um, you know I could have said the same thing about both Koreas right and uh, you know mm -hmm. certainly when I talk with my students I certainly don't think that any of them are particularly interested in, in unification um, as, as an important part of you know South Korea's overall national strategy especially if you start to ask them. You know, a detailed question about you know whether or not you'd be willing to you know pay higher taxes or you know forego a certain you know consumption or you know make other types of sacrifices. So I, I think I I think that's worth pointing out too that there's quite a bit of skepticism here in South Korea, uh, at least if we're willing to pay attention to you know where the where the money gets spent and you know mm. what people answer when you start to ask them hard questions rather than the sort of 
gauzy rhetoric of you know how nice would it be for north and south to be to be unified again uh, and then you know to to turn to the north um you know here i'll just you know in some sense you know crib a little bit from your i guess you're the founder of, or one of the founders I, I think or at least one of the early principals in nk news um uh, and, and the the risk group andre langoff and as i'm sure you've heard and i'm as i'm sure many of the the podcast listeners have heard uh, him say at some point or another, either you know, via something on NK News or or, or a conference or some other public appearance, uh, when when Andre is asked about this, you know, he tends to answer, of course, in his absolutely fantastic accent uh, in English, uh, that the North Korean leadership at night, you know, when it's a sunny, you know, when it's a, a sunny day and you know a warm autumn evening. When they've had a few sojus and something to to eat, and their bellies are full and they're lying in bed, you know, they might dream of unification, and then they wake up the next morning and they know that this was a fever dream that that you know mm. can't happen. And you know, the the North Korean strategy, at least so far as I think we understand it, or at least the sort of you know aggressive reading of their strategy uh, for achieving unification you know, involves uh, using uh, nuclear weapons, using provocations, using uh, attacks uh, against the South, using salami slicing tactics, uh, using, you know, the diplomatic capability to, to play, uh, you know, various regional actors off of each other, you know, in order ultimately to, to convince the U.S. that it's not worth staying on the peninsula anymore. And then at that point, you know, using that opening as a way uh, to begin to worm into to South Korea and, you know, by hook or by crook to somehow, you know, lead to a confederation or somehow end up with some type of, you know, political takeover of South Korea. And when I, when I hear that, when I hear that version of the story, I think, okay, in some ways it sounds good on paper, but, you know, in practice, it would be like the dog that chases the car. I mean, what is mm. the dog going to do when it actually gets the car? <laughs> it has no idea where to start. Uh, and I think to some degree, that's kind of what Andre uh, is is talking about when he answers, uh, you know, the various forms of this question that he gets. In your book, there are a, a couple of fleeting references to the idea of a confederation or a low level federation between the two Koreas. Um, I've heard advisor to the Blue House, uh, Moon Jong-in, uh, describe it as a kind of European union of, of two Korean states. Scholar B.R. Myers often writes about this, painting it as a way to sneak North Korea-led unification scenarios into South Korea via a Trojan horse. But what are your thoughts on confederation? It sounds innocuous and balanced, but is it something that would end up favoring one Korea over the other? And if so, why would the other disadvantaged Korea ever assent to it? Um, I'll, I'll try to go first on this one. And yeah, a lot has been written about the, the confederation. This goes back to speeches from Kim Il-sung from the, the the 60s and 70s talking about it. It was part of President Kim Dae-jung's sort of uh, process. He had it all laid out in different in different guises as well. What occurs to me in, in terms of this confederation or, or as you sort of paint these pictures of um, people drinking soju late at night in Pyongyang and then the reality of what would happen were they to have the keys to the Blue House, which are, I think are very pertinent points. And I, I agree with a lot of that. 
is that there can only sort of be one if we we're, if we use that Highlander message there's there's one head of a company there's one head of a football team and if you take that sort of Korean Confucian culture there's one head of a family and so this sort of division that will be will be one with two heads and things like that a lot of the time it doesn't seem to make much sense to me that it would work like that perhaps this is British coming I I failed sometimes greatly to understand how American law works mm. across states and federal law and things like that. So perhaps it's my own background uh, that makes it a little bit sort of tricky for me to understand. But Well, the short, the short answer is it doesn't work, just to let you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As a U.S. citizen, I can, I can assure you it's a gigantic mess. <laughs> and yeah, absolutely. And in that sense, I think the same here for Confederation. It's like there to put two on equal terms, but really to have no one. I mean, you look at all sort of Korean literature or historical dramas and period things. And when there's two moons in the sky or two suns in the sky, there's always chaos in the nation. It's a, it's only when one rises and things like that. So the idea of confederation seems to me to be a way of pleasing everybody, but achieving nothing and getting nothing. So I, I don't personally see it as a way it seems to be a, a little bit of a cop-out I, I admire the efforts but yeah i don't see that working personally is it possible that maybe by 2032 the two careers will finally have settled into a at least a tacit implicit form of peaceful mutual co coexistence so you, know, you you referenced you know europe and, and talked about a, a you know this is a european union and you you, you referenced the you know recent you know, talk or a recent comment by by Moon Chung In, you know, I, I think, you know, obviously 1973 is not the same as 2021. So, you know, times change, people change. Kim Il Sung is is not Kim Jong Un, um, but you know, on at least one occasion, you know, we have a record of Kim Il Sung referring to this confederation idea, uh, and then telling a European leader, I don't remember who it was. I, I want to say it might have been. In I think it was Bulgaria or Romania. Bulgaria, you know, and and the 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 you know the aside was, and that will be the end of South Korea. I mean, so mm -hmm. I mean, it was you know it was pretty obvious that you know at least in theory this was supposed to be a kind of a Trojan horse. Whether or not that's still the case today, I, I think is is an open question. When we when we talk about Europe, I mean, to me the the much you know clearer form of how it is that North and South can more than just coexist, but you know, eventually even cooperate and, and even in some way become integrated uh, is the way that we see Germany and Austria function, right? I mean, you know, those are two you know, independent sovereign states, uh, but they speak the same language. They have extremely similar cultural roots. Uh, you know, they have uh, you know, similar political systems in a lot of ways. And you know, obviously, you know, Europe is very different than, than the Korean Peninsula. But I think that model, I think, is a lot more realistic uh, than than a you know true full-on unification, whether it be a, a confederation or something else. And to answer your question directly, I think that's kind of where we're headed. Now, the problem, of course, is that Austria and Germany, you know, get along very well because both of them are, you know, mem among other reasons, because they're both members of good standing uh, in the international system and, and, mm. and international organizations, which is not the case for North Korea, which is beset by sanctions, uh, you know, largely of its own, you know, born of its own mistakes and failures. And until it manages to, to either outlast 
those sanctions and you know somehow you know develop uh, a way of getting around them uh, and still managing to to succeed as a as a nation, you know, or if it manages to to outlast them and the international community eventually gives up on them, you know, North Korea is going to be a volatile partner for South Korea in a in a way that Austria is, for instance, not a volatile partner uh, for Germany. Um, if I might try to go add something to, the, to this question, if I may, thank you. Just looking through some of, let's say, what the book that we've put together is and how that's tried to address it. So, for example, in chapter two, we have Kadir and Yuri Kim, who, who focus on the importance of South Korean domestic politics. So what we see going forward, that's going to be heavily influenced by what kind of political regime we have here in South Korea. Obviously, the the ruling Democratic Party, they've had a uh, sort of a parliamentary majority for a while, but we have presidential elections coming up. So so what we see going forward is obviously going to be dependent on, to some degree, domestic South Korean politics. In in chapter three of the book, uh, Rob York from the Pacific Forum, he looks at the importance of the US presidency. and, And we all know what happened when Donald Trump was president, but we'll have another couple of presidents or, or maybe one president for two terms going forward. So the US presidency and, and their attitudes and, and what they think are going to have huge implications. Randall Jones in his chapter, he's looking at the economy and integrated economy. And this is a really big thing. You know, when dollars cross borders, bombs don't, is there a way that there can be a, a resurrection of some sort of integrated economic win-win policies that might strengthen South and North Korea, both in absolute terms and and vis-a-vis other countries in the region. Um, my own chapter, for example, was looking at the ideas and the identity and, and who South Korean and North Korean people think they are, sort of do they believe they're, they're multicultural people living in a world? Do they believe they're still living under the yoke of imperialism? So I, I think, again, and just to reiterate and, and plug it, I guess, while we're on the podcast, is that's one of the strengths of the book in that there are so many different ways to approach these questions. And will we see any sort of tangible coming together or conflict? It, it depends where we're looking. And I think the more of this that we can account for, the closer we'll come, we'll never get it exactly right. But the more we account for the sort of better prepared we are for whatever does unfold. Mason, when you started this book project, where were inter-Korean relations? Um, Hold on. Well, okay, so now you're asking me to think back in the past, and I'm not great at that. Hold on a second. So wait, we're now in 2021. I (laughs) guess I came on in... 20 so so david and jagannath were had already kind of dreamed up the sort of basic idea and then they asked me to to come on um after and i want to say it was basically like mid early like early to mid 2019 does that sound right david so it was either just before or just after the failure of the hanoi summit i want to yeah i want to say it was around the time of hanoi yeah Mm -hmm if I remember correctly. Uh, so David, since back to you, since you started this project a bit earlier, has any event or development in the period since you submitted your manuscript with Rutledge made you rethink your approach or conclusions? Everything, everything does. And, you know, that's one of the things about this 24-hour news cycle and whether it's the sort of the, the 
controlled demolition of the buildings in Kaesong by North Korea, whether it's the the IOC sort of pointing towards Brisbane as the only host of the 2032. It's so easy in the, the field of South Korea and North Korea into Korean relations for anything that you do to be immediately mm. out of date, even before you've pressed enter or send on whatever it is. So that always happens. But I, I would also suggest that, you know, with these long, taking a slightly longer term that avoids all the ups and downs because we know that these ups and downs are good for media. They're good for retention. They're good for driving stories, but we need to take sometimes a slightly longer term view and, and things can change so quickly um, in inter-Korean relations with North Korea and also with South Korea. I mean, even before sort of the, the Pyeongchang Olympics and with that, that, that Peace Olympics where I was working at as an official translator, before they were coming in under the unified flag a year or so before that though it was never going to happen so there have been many events jacko that have sort of led me to believe that yeah this is sort of challenges what we're doing in the book but at the same time i'm also cognizant of the fact that in the long term we don't really know what's going to happen and we can become a little bit sometimes overburdened by the immediacy of news without looking at let's say the longer term curve and what's going on in that sense so in that sense i have a little bit more confidence that the 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 various perspectives they do still hold a lot of validity going forward um mason back to you who's your audience for this book it's uh, published by rutledge which means uh it's us 50 dollars for even an electronic version um, it probably will end up on a lot of institutional libraries. Do you hope that undergraduates and lay people will also read it? Yeah. So, okay. So this is the part of the show where we, where we get into the sausage making, right? Mm. So for those of you who have never, uh, for, you know, done an, an academic monograph or an editor. Guilty volume, as charged. That's me. Yep. Yeah. One of, one of the, so one of the things that the editor, the, the publishers do when you're putting in a book proposal is they ask you to, to put together um, a marketing plan. And for any type of book that is scholarly, the marketing plan consists on line one of institutional purchasers. So <laughs> university yeah. libraries, obviously, uh, you know, think tanks and, you know, institutes, you know, government uh, agencies and that type of thing. Um, and that's really who uh, these, these publishers are, are primarily going to be marketing uh, to. And so in that sense, you know, honestly, our, you know, our community of, uh, sorry, our uh, audience, you know, or the relatively small community, globally speaking, uh, of, you know, uh, Korea watchers and, uh, you know, those, you know, in academia, whether they be students, graduate or otherwise. And, you know, I think the one saving grace for this type of thing where you don't end up just having your book fall down, you know, the, the academic publishing hole into you know, into the stacks and some some library uh, is that you can now promote the book through social media and through other forms. So you can kind of you know grow the people who are willing to look at your work that way. The other thing, of course, that that is the saving grace for these types of books is that you know now you can get electronic copies. And indeed, you know the whole book costs you know X amount of dollars. I don't remember. You know, I probably shouldn't say this, but it's egregiously overpriced, of course. And however, if you want to you can just i believe purchase individual chapters 
and so you know electronic electronic publishing does you know allow you to to escape the trap of having to buy uh the whole book or not have any access to it at all all that being said we should entirely change the model of academic publishing it's totally screwed up because you know, essentially the authors, and in this case, the editors, you know, get basically nothing from the book. I mean, we'll probably see effectively speaking, no royalties from this at all. Uh, and yet we provided all of the labor uh, or almost all of the labor, except for, you know, some some editing from Routledge, you know, obviously the, the procurement person there who, who was responsible for, you know, collecting the proposal, sending it out to reviewers, and that type of stuff and then the typesetting you know but you know we're providing this you know you know massive book with uh you know huge amount of labor time built into it and, and yet you know Routledge is going to make a bunch of money off of it and we're going to make almost none of it so my big lesson would be don't get involved in academic publishing and secondly for all of the academics out there let's please try to find a way to do this differently because Elsevier and you know Routledge and Taylor and Francis and all of these uh, and Wiley and Sage they're all making a fortune off of us because we're a bunch of suckers. BMI has told me that about a decade ago which is why he published his uh, his last book on the Juche myth uh, completely self-published and he, he seemed to be quite happy with the results on that one. Yeah, I have to say, I you know, the first time I gave this, I you know, I started I started as a full time as a full time professor as a full time academic in two thousand and nine, and you know, within about a year or two, I'd had you know several journal articles come out, and I was just like, wow, these things cost a fortune for you know any actual reader to mm. to purchase, and yet I'm not going to see any of this, and I started yeah. paying attention to the profit margins for uh for some of these publishers and it's absolutely insane you know mm. if you look at like your average growth grocery store their their gross profit margins are less than one percent car manufacturer maybe five percent to ten percent apple which we tend to think of as a sort of you know like a you know sort of gold standard for you know efficiency and ringing profitability out of their enterprise you know is maybe 15 to 20 percent and the year that i looked at Elsevier's profit margin was something Elsevier, like twenty six percent. Yeah, it's insane. These people are making a fortune because they've figured out, you know, they've reverse engineered Marx, and they've essentially gotten a bunch yeah. of free la free labor out of Marxists. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, but it's great to think of your exposure. It's great for your exposure. Get your name out there, Mason. Um, as yeah. editors, did you have to advise any of your authors in the editing process to be more restrained in their predictions or outlooks? I mean, after all, this is a book about, you know, 2032 looking forward. Uh, David? I, I think we, as I just, just to agree with everything Mason said, yeah, there's a lot of labor involved for which we see uh, little fruits of our reward other than the intellectual journey upon which we embarked, obviously. But there was a lot of work that we did do with the authors, yeah, because as much as is possible you want the book to sort of retain an element of a collective whole it's really hard when you have people writing about different things from all these different subjects and you don't want it to be a collective whole you want these different views mm. and so we, we were not necessarily reining things in and saying no you can't say that or please tone this down I wouldn't say that that was the editing mm -hmm. but it was more sort of trying to direct them to get to the meat of the arguments quicker and not cover too much of the ground that's already been done so there was a lot of editing and and things that we did with the writers who were incredibly responsive just in case any of them do listen to this i would like to to thank them all once more uh for their efforts but 
the the editing process that uh, Mason, myself, and Jagannath did was was more based on you know sort of how the chapter is structured and when the argument should come in and what arguments are necessary and what arguments are perhaps a, a little bit superfluous. So that's how we worked it. Now, of course, you weren't just editors, but you were also writing or co-writing a chapter each. And what was it like to submit your own paper to each other for editing and criticism? Because it seems like, you know, now you're on the other side of the writing equation. Well, I think David was the person who read mine. And I think I read Jagannath and I guess Jagannath read David, I don't remember. But, um, you know, I am absolutely guilty as charged as as a writer, I am terrible. I think that every word I write is so precious and so perfect. And any change is an affront to my, uh, you know, to my good taste and my argumentative acumen. And, you know, under no circumstances should anything that I've written be touched. Um, so I'm kind of a nightmare in that regard, and I, David's probably suppressed the memory at this point. So, <laughs> but it's not it's not fun. I hate being edited. Well, honestly, I hate. I didn't it so know much. about that. Like, Brief well, comment, we co-wrote an, we co-wrote an introduction together, and 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 right. if I would have known that that was Mason's position, I might have been a little bit more, let's say, hesitant or, mm. or something. But I was generally just my usual self and confident and honest and. And so, yeah, we're still friends uh, since then, and, and we had a meal together the other the other week. So, we survived. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm happy to see a psychologist for my fractured ego, but as long as you're happy <laughs> with the meal that we had, I guess that's what matters. Yeah, first world problems. <laughs> now, over the last five to ten years, uh, the world has come to pay much greater attention to the Korean Peninsula than any time since, let's say, the 1988 Olympics or perhaps the Korean War before it. Uh, and that's true, not just in the area of nuclear weapons and uh, security problems and inter-Korean and U.S.-North Korea relations, but also economically and, of course, culturally. David's written a lot about that uh, in his column in the Korea Times. But fads fade and people's interest moves on to other things. Uh, as a, an imperfect analogy, South Koreans in the 1950s and 60s, and perhaps even through to the mid-1970s, lived in fear of a renewed war with North Korea. But it's not possible to... It's not sustainable to keep that sort of fear active for too long. And I wonder if the world will also get used to the cycles of aggression and rapprochement on the Korean Peninsula and stop paying attention, and whether that will matter in the big scheme of things, except to people like us who make a career out of Korea. I think that's a, a, a wonderful question and a fantastic pun. Um, so congratulations on that. Uh, Thank you. Rather than rather than just the fear, I wonder if, uh, and you're right, fads do come and go, but I wonder if the dust might not just settle and, and, and people might start accepting North Korea for what it is, just as it's accepted South Korea for what it is. I, I think we're, we're entering a world in, in which sort of, if we are going from modernity to post-modernity, if we are going from a world in which there used to be one truth and now that there are multiple valid perspectives which will need to be accounted for i wonder if we we might enter a stage where north korea is not seen as the sort of the the problem child of it, international society anymore that it that it might just become over time something that's accepted for who it is and obviously this is providing that it abides by international law as as we hope that all states do and not carry out sort of terrorist actions or or things like that. But I, I think over time that we might sort of 
settle down and it rather than the status quo, it might just be the way it is that North Korea, and again, this comes from that British perspective of, of, of having an embassy and an ambassador there and seeing North Korea as perhaps not your favorite state in the world, but a state legitimate, uh, like everybody else in the international community. And so I, I, I think if we can get to there, and for many of us, I think we are already there. It's just some of the, let's say, greater powers or people in South Korea that that are always trying to sort of fix a problem. And perhaps there, there isn't a problem at the moment. I'm not sure what will happen with demographic things, with South Korea and military conscription. That's also going to play a role. We just want a little bit more peace in the world, obviously, and, and we want better lives for as many people as possible. I wonder if instead of always trying to solve these problems that we just sort of leave them alone, perhaps. I, I want, but I have to ask, David, it, it does feel a little bit like you're conflating two things, and one of them being accepting North mm. Korea as a legitimate state, albeit with some aspects yep. that we don't like, and the other being yep. accepting North Korea as a nuclear power, uh, a, a, a country with nuclear weapons. And at this stage, despite the fact that Britain has an embassy in Pyongyang, although it's now non-functioning since there is no staff there because of the COVID lockdown, um, despite yeah. the, Britain having an embassy there and having normalized diplomatic relations with the, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, I don't yeah. see Great Britain as being close to accepting North Korea as a nuclear power. And I don't see um, you know, any state publicly saying that they're prepared to accept North Korea as a nuclear power. I agree. Yeah, no, and, and that's that's the conundrum. That's the problem to be solved. But uh, again, that's not something that I have an answer for. I would probably prefer it if the United States didn't have nuclear weapons or Boris Johnson didn't have a, a nuclear football or what it was, um, because, you know, the, the people in power, they, they, they have various responsibilities. So I agree and I understand uh, the point that you're making. I, I don't honestly have an answer for it, but I, let's hope that some people somewhere do. Mason, do you have an answer to it? Well, um, I mean, just, I mean, it, it, at least I think I'm answering the question that you asked you know, is there the potential for the for us to look back at the Korean Peninsula as a as a fad? Um, and of course, the answer is, is it possible. But if if I can share like a, an interesting, well, if I, I'd answer it this way. You know, Korea, you know, the Korean Peninsula has, in some sense, let's say from at least the mid twentieth century uh, up until today, been interesting and relevant, and, and I think has gotten more attention than you might have expected from an area. Uh, as small as, as small as it is, mm. um, and located where it is, you know, at least in the first and for most of the 20th century, you know, far away from the the center of action in in Europe or, or other places. And you know, I, I just share an interesting nugget from from the book. I think um, that something that I didn't know, some, something I think kind of interesting. Um, you know, North Korea in the 1940s mined uranium for Stalin's nuclear program. Mm. Uh, this is something that uh, Jiyeon Kim uh, discusses uh, a bit in her chapter on nuclear issues uh, on the peninsula. And that was actually the seed of scientific cooperation between the Soviet Union and North Korea, you know, including, you know, early efforts, you know, or, you know, an early exchange of information between scientists uh, in Pyongyang and, and Moscow um, about nuclear developments. So, you know, even going back to the 1940s, I mean, you know, North Korea, you know, already has some type of connection with this, 
you know beginning of uh, of weaponry that you know today takes up a, a significant amount of of mind share. To give a, a similar type of example from the South and something that maybe we don't again I think think about quite as much, you know when the U.S. went to Vietnam uh, and fought the war there, the number one partner that joined the United States in terms of troops deployed to Vietnam was South Korea. Mm-hmm. Right? So, you know, even in the 70s, when South Korea was still, you know, developing in its very early phases, you know, it was playing a geopolitical role. And so if we fast forward to 1988 with the Olympics, if we fast forward to 2002 with the World Cup, uh, and then if we fast forward to uh, 2009 with uh, nuclear tests, 2010 with the nuclear security summit and the G20, uh, 2012, uh, you know, Kim Jong-un passing away, uh, sorry, Kim Jong-il passing away, uh, 2013, 16, and 17 uh, with nuclear tests, missile tests, South Korean impeachment, 2018 with the Olympics, rapprochement, um, you know, the Korean Peninsula is surprisingly relevant. Of course, going forward as long as and this sort of circles back to David's answer and then you know your statement Jacko or, or in some sense kind of tries to, to marry them together a little bit to the extent that North Korea continues to have nuclear weapons and to, to the extent that the world has a difficulty um, figuring out uh, how to integrate North Korea into the international order you know as a nuclear armed power deterrence nuclear deterrence, uh, and with respect to South Korea, you know, extended nuclear deterrence is going to be an issue. And as I said, you know, nuclear weapons take up a, a disproportionate amount of mind share uh, in terms of international security. And in addition to that, you know, now this, the location of the Korean Peninsula today at the sort of you know, center of Northeast Asia, where there's this massive geopolitical uh, competition taking place between the, the U.S. Uh, and China, you know, again, sort of underlines why it is that it's more likely than not that the Korean Peninsula is going to be relevant and won't simply be a fad that, you know, in five or 10 years is something that, you know, people think of as a sort of obscure footnote to larger issues that are happening in history. Well, let's, uh, let's hope so. <laughs> let's, fingers crossed. And uh, we'll we have to get back to, uh, come back together, reconvene in 11 years time in 2032 and look back and see how much of, uh, of this has come to pass. I want to thank you both, gentlemen, for coming on the show again today, Mason, Richie, and David Tizat. And please uh, give my regards to your fellow editor who sadly could not be with us tonight, Jagannath Panda. Thanks for having me, Jacko. I really appreciate it. We appreciate the chance to, to talk about the book. Uh, and as always, uh, I cherish the opportunity to speak with you. Uh, and it's uh, also nice to be able to, to join uh, David again. Yeah, just to reiterate, thank you very much, uh, Jacko, and keep up the great work on NK News. Thank you. And that title of the book, once again, The Future of the Korean Peninsula, Korea 2032 and Beyond, uh, is out now, despite having a uh, 2022 publication date uh, from Rutledge or Routledge, however one pronounces it. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, if you are already an NK News subscriber, do take a look at our NK Pro platform, which offers unparalleled services specifically catered to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the Korean Peninsula. Inquire about access at membership at nknews.org today. And if you have feedback, questions, or guest recommendations, please send them to podcast at nknews.org. Our thanks, as always, to Arius Dare and Brian Betts for facilitating this podcast and to Gabby Magnuson, our post-recording producer genius. Thanks, and listen again next time. Mm-hmm.